Hey everybody, welcome back to the Funk Podcast, the worst titled podcast on the internet. I'm Bradley Tolliver, and not Comfort Jones, which is the stupid internet name that for some reason I introduced myself by last time, even though I literally said to Sean, hey, I'm going to go with my real name. <laughs> and this is Sean Noonan. Yeah, so we're uh, both designers of different experience levels, but uh, well, basically into first person stuff mostly, right? Oh yeah, it's pretty most of my like design experience. Most of my experience is mostly through like modding, really. When I say most, I mean all. But like, you know, uh, it's it's been what six years now, so I'm I'm at that point in my life where you know uh, I'm real close to getting something. It's just kind of a matter uh, when it happens. Uh, fun fact: it was uh, late last year or midway last year. Uh, Valve sent me a email saying they were interested in doing an interview. I followed up with them, and they never followed back. So that's my big claim to fame right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that happens quite a lot. There's always the chance that things can get lost, you know. Um, yep. Lost within either a lot of applicants or just overlooked. Uh, I, I've had that situation in the last... Um, couple of years where i had a cv literally uh, lost when an hr system changed over so they moved to new software pain and yeah my resume cv whatever you want to call it and portfolio were lost in that and the company uh, in question actually got in touch with me afterwards and said asked if i was still interested but i was you know i moved on to other things right Speaking of Valve, so this next fest thing happened uh, recently. I think you have a little bit more info on it than I did because I, I was completely out of the loop until after it came out. Looks kind of look, looked pretty interesting to see uh, like such a big spotlight on like a lot of these lesser known titles because like there isn't a lot of other ways for people to, to get that other than just like browsing like these kind of indie spaces a lot. That's why it sort of stood out to me because. There aren't really the same platforms as there once were for smaller games because there's just so many of them out there now. And I think the, uh, I don't really want to say triple I, but like. <laughs> I hated that. Don't ever say that shit to me again. Go on. <laughs> Bigger indies, have, they've got to the kind of state where smaller, you know, studios were once at. So there's there's not really that level playing field anymore. Uh, there's There's so much noise. It's quite easy to get lost in it. So it's quite nice that Valve have actually got, I guess, a uh, celebration of smaller independent projects that you know like, i mean some of them are big games but overall they are smaller games i hadn't heard of quite a lot of them yeah i think the prerequisite was that the games had to have demos mm, yeah because a lot I, I noticed it seemed like most of them had panelists playing them i kind I, I won't lie kind of skimmed because like i don't know i bounce off panel shows really hard if it's people i don't care about talking i'm like nope can't do it won't do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think it's great that there's a platform there, and definitely it did show me some games that I thought would be interesting to me. Obviously, the first-person games kind of where my interest lies, and there was a Turbo Overkill, which has got a lot of attention. I've got feelings on that game. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't super into it when I first saw the trailer, but I've heard people have said the demo's good, and that's kind of where the proof is, right? It's just I did kind of bounce off the trailer because. Probably because it was in that, um, I think the first time I saw it was in Realms Deep, and that was just, because that was wall-to-wall first-person shooters pretty much, um, I just, yeah. the fatigue set in quite a bit there. And I, I think that's, that's more of a sort of cynical old-person view that I have. I don't think that's representative of the people who were watching that. I think most people were actually kind of enjoying all of that. It's just, I had some fatigue from it. Yeah, Turbo to Overkill. I, I'm looking forward to playing the demo of that. Uh, there was My Friendly Neighborhood as well. 
Um, if you saw that, I think I might have missed that one. Tell me about it. It looks like a this kind of creepy. Uh, it's like a first person. Uh, what are those things called? You know, the sort of like a, where people get fast food and there's there's like animatronic puppet things. I, I know what you're talking about, but yeah, we had like Chuck E. Cheese here and crap like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very American thing. We don't really have it in the UK. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's like a first-person shooter with those things in. As far as I can tell, um, it's it it looks it looks quite striking visually, and the weapons are quite inventive. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. And then there are a couple of others that I just added because they were first-person. Um, there was one called Holosk 1999, which looked kind of slav walking sim thing that's that's kind of up my alley so I'll, I'll try that the other one i downloaded was scathe but I, I didn't really look at that other than the fact it looked like a first person shooter so see ironically for me the ones i was most curious about were really outside of that genre elsie looked pretty interesting the the weird like it's like a roguelite or like i'm not sure I, I need to like look at like how hard like the the death punishment is right but it's like a roguelike with um Sort of like Mega Man E kind of gameplay. Looks like st- stuff can get pretty like hectic on screen, but that usually is kind of like right up my alley. I'm the kind of person who's put like hundreds of hours in the risk range too at this point. Played a lot of, you know, all that kinds of stuff. Enter the Gungeon, uh, Binding of Isaac, whatever. I'm into games that smack the teeth out of your head for the first, you know, 30 hours or whatever. I'm I'm into that. Right. Soldiers looked really interesting. I don't know if you saw that. That was like this... um. I did see that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. really cute little like Metroidvania looking thing. But like, I, it wasn't actually that clear to me that it was a Metroidvania when I was just watching the trailer. Yeah. Which I would chalk up as a good thing, honestly. <laughs> like if your game doesn't immediately make me just go, oh, it's another one of those. That's like a, that's a good sign. Because that's always like the worst thing for me is if I'm watching like an indie game trailer and I'm like, oh, it's kind of one of those, you know? Yeah, that's kind of what I was uh, talking about before about the sort of cynical old person view that I have now. Um, yeah. I feel like I've seen most things before and I can work out what they are quite quickly. And Yes. If I can't, then that's instantly got my interest and I'll download it no matter what and it'll be on my wish list for sure. Whereas the other games, I might have to have some kind of insight into, you know, who developed it. Yeah. Whether or not people I like also like it, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with like that Turbo Overkill game where it's like, I think that game is accomplishing what they uh, they set out to do. Um, I do think it's a big step above a lot of these other, they call them boomer shooters, you know, like Dusk and all that. Yeah. Where like it feels like they knew what they wanted to do and every like aspect of it is like just absolutely blasting on that front. Problem is I don't think I'm interested in the experience boomer shooters are trying to provide. I feel like Doom 2016 was like the peak uh, in terms of like the idea of like, oh, we're going to make a game that's like kind of like a power trip because like, I don't know, there's still enough stuff going on in doom 2016 to where like you can have like a challenging experience you can you can have like moments where like not everything's super easy to avoid where it's like a lot of these boomer shooters they open with like the music blasting you know full tilt and like 50 enemies on screen and you're just like mowing them down like immediately and it's just like oh is this, it's just this is just the game like i'm just sort of like murdering everything like there's I, I like back and forth in my games. I, I guess, you know, I'm a big fan of Quake and not so much of uh, Dusk, if that's fair to say. I know what you mean. There is a big difference there. Yeah, and that was that kind of goes to balance, which is something we've touched on a little bit in the, in the last podcast, but I kind of want to get more into this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so when it comes to, like, my, my relationship with games these days, I feel like I'm in this weird place where 
I feel like I don't enjoy games as much anymore because it feels like they've become more and more what I'd say like player weighted where it doesn't feel like the game's built around kind of like a, a, a push and pull with the mechanics and more like they want you to kind of push into the game however you want to do it. Like that's kind of, you know, that's the uh, Ubisoft open world in a nutshell. It's a lot, a lot of these RPGs where it's like you're given a lot of freedom and the enemies usually aren't. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of power on the player side, right? Yeah, and it, it it leads to like, I don't know, to me, it's like a very shallow experience. And I, I don't think a lot of games actually do the whole player sided thing well to a point where I feel like the game has like legs. It's like there's Devil May Cry 5 and I guess Doom 2016. And I'm, I'm like struggling to think of modern games have played where I felt like this is really weighted in the player's favor, but it's still like expecting me to like think about what I'm doing or assess the situation and, and like do something interesting. Because there's plenty of games, uh, especially like in the MSIM genre, uh, immersive sim genre, I should say, where you're given a lot of cool stuff you can do. Metal Gear Solid Five really comes to mind in, in this regard. Where like there's so much you can do in that game, but there's no reason to do it. So if you're into like kind of sandbox stuff, if you're into like playing with the game more like a toy, then it's it's great. If you're into like a, like a experience where like you're kind of really reacting to some kind of pressure, eh, just trank everybody, put them on that that Fulton balloon thing, you know, repeat. Yeah, there's definitely a space for I don't know a more balanced approach when it comes to player and enemy power in those types of games. From a pitch point of view, it might not seem as appealing on paper. I think up front, maybe, but I also think that's the entire reason the Souls series kind of picked up with people. It was a rare game, especially back then. That was like, you know, Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed were kind of like running the show. Yeah, we were at peak, you know, accessibility at that point. Yeah. And this game comes out where it's just like, hey, if you die, you're at 50% health. And you're like, and then what? And they're like, and that's it. And you're like, oh, like it, the friction, you know, it scared some people off. But I think it also pulled maniacs like me in. And then like the, the word of mouth really helped. And it's like, you know, it, it literally spawned an entire franchise and then two other uh, very successful side games. They they made like the PlayStation 4's first killer app. And that, that's like what the most popular console right now, right? Like home machines. I'm pretty sure PlayStation 4 is still pretty dominant. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, I think they've shown like there's there's ways to do that. Like um I would argue Sekiro, while um very challenging, is a bit more player weighted than their other games, but they do it in more subtle ways where it's like you, you need to kinda like realize how you can like use your tools to kinda like, you know, accomplish what you want to do. And I just I don't know. I'm like I I really want more experiences like that. Really looking forward to Elden Ring. Got like a what, like a day left, baby. Yeah, I, I've only really gotten into Bloodborne out of all of those games. And it's purely from a, an aesthetic point of view. Of course. It's, it's very much my kind of thing. But the game itself, mm. I, I do I do enjoy it, but I find it, I, I guess I find the punishment, it gives me too easy an excuse to stop playing and, and then mm. go away for a while. And then maybe that while becomes, you know, a long while. <laughs> And I'll just be playing something else instead. I, w I will always go back to it and then have to go through those, you know, over those same hurdles again. Yeah. And learn the game again. And it's obviously very rewarding, but I've got thousands of games to play. And So not jumping on Elden Ring then. 
No, I, I won't be. It doesn't really... What a shame. The, the world doesn't really appeal to me very much. Hmm. I'm not a fantasy guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not the biggest fantasy guy, but if, if From Software is involved, I gotta jump in on that. Yeah, I have to say, I do like their treatment of that, and I can see the appeal, but the world is just not... It doesn't grab me. Sure, sure. But yeah, um... Push and pull. I just, I, I want to see more of that. It's something I'm really trying to get at in um, what I've been working on. And that's something I'm hoping we can, we can touch on a little bit later in the podcast. I really want to talk about figuring out like, how do you elaborate on like your design process? That's like a big thing I want to talk about. But uh, on the subject of Elden Ring really quick, recently uh, Ko- uh, Kotaku, I don't know if they straight up broke an embargo, but they basically leaked like the game's opening with like a big old like text dump of of uh the voiceover in case it got claimed and i just i'm like if i didn't have enough reasons not to go on these sites that's just like another one on top yeah it's I, it's it's this weird issue i have where these sites it feel like they they really lean into the worst aspects of the enthusiast culture for me and I see it there, and I see it with, uh, we were talking about the um, Bethesda launcher recently uh, being uh, shut down. Yeah. And uh, do you remember the headline for how Kotaku uh, wanted to announce that? Uh, I can't remember what it was exactly. Bethesda ditching its stupid launcher, returning to Steam. Yeah, it it sort of irritates me when I see language like that, because it it just looks, uh, I don't want to sound too pretentious or anything, but it does look really um, unprofessional and... I, I know it's a blog, but they also like to put themselves forward as journalists, right? And it just it's it's not the right sort of language to be using, I don't think. No. I and I know what it's there for. It's to <laughs> Well, I mean the obvious thing is to generate clicks, but that it goes a little deeper than that. It's the lowest common denominator, like people who are angry, people who are passionate, you know, you, you grab those people through language and yeah, I, th- I think it's a shame when people kind of sink to that level. I, I think uh, Kotaku is a strange publication anyway, because they've gone through so many different, um, so many different forms of management. And there's also, there's a divide between the American and UK one as well. And they're, they're quite different organizations as far as I know. I'm so out of the loop on things. It's just, you know, sometimes I'll see on Twitter and it, the thing I usually see on Twitter will be the thing with the most um, caustic language, I suppose. And it's, it's it's there for a reason it, it does generate interest but i just wish that the race to the bottom wasn't so fast you know yeah um i guess i just i want to close on that with uh just sort of like a note for anyone listening to this who isn't already like involved in game development because the the instant you're involved in it you, you you realize like why this is an important thing to understand um do not follow people whose main like promotion for like game news and consumer protection quote quotes is basically like finding excuses to shit either on like people or teams because it absolutely furthers negativity towards developers which ruins things for everybody it makes developers less likely to want to communicate with you yeah it makes their lives worse like a lot of people do not handle that well i promise you when croby cat or crobe cat i don't know how you pronounce his stupid name put out that video <laughs> With some dipshit title like uh, what was it uh, like uh, proof that Valve carried like Turtle Rock or whatever, basically like to, to like shit on uh, Back for Blood. I guarantee you that led to uh, a good amount of messages and hate and all kinds of other negative stuff for those people. They don't deserve that. They are people just like you and me, you know, doing their best. Uh, they're probably no worse at their job than you are at yours. 
uh, differences, they get a spotlight put on them whenever they put out something, you know, that disappoints people. Am I going to defend the game? No, if you want to say the game's not good, you you want to tear it apart, sure, fine. But when, you're, when your video is specifically about the team, which is what that, it's in the title. Yeah. Y- you are promoting hostility. You are not promoting some kind of, like, consumer protection. And I, I really hope some sec, uh, like, small section of people who are listening to this at least start thinking about that because it really hurts for me to watch yeah yeah it's not and again like this like what i said the race to the bottom like that is the bottom basically (laughs) when you're you're using the language that targets people rather than products i mean obviously it's it it is skirting it a little there but still it it doesn't help things i guess it helps the person who's made the video they get popularity and um you know yeah it's that that race to the bottom <laughs> yeah you know what else didn't help things though was that stupid bethesda launcher <laughs> uh for, for real though uh i remember i got like a, a free game <laughs> through like a like a gpu purchase or something and i had to redeem it through uh like the, the bethesda launcher it was, i think it was like the wolfenstein thing or whatever yeah and i don't think i ever actually i don't think i ever actually played it i don't think i ever actually got it because <laughs> i just didn't want to deal with it yeah, I'm in a similar boat actually. I've I've got a bunch of uh, Bethesda games sitting in shrink wrap still, and I need to I need to basically open them all up and uh, type in the codes because um, obviously uh, the Bethesda launcher is no more. Yeah. Well, I I don't know when. Like what? Two months? Three months or something? They're going to kill it off? Yeah. Um. I say good riddance because it's not like those games weren't available. It's a little bit more depressing when it's like the Nintendo eShops going down for certain things. But <laughs> yeah. I really hope like we just stop getting these like single publisher like launchers. I just I, I think it's the worst thing. I have no problem with competition. Like I think GOG and um Epic are are good things. It's good that like Steam has some kind of competition. Epic doing like the free games thing is probably like the, the best thing they could have done for that strategy. Yeah. Uh but when it's like, oh, you wanna you gotta download this so you can play like something off from Ubisoft, it's like don't don't do this to me. Don't don't do this to me. When this happened, the Bethesda launcher uh, getting killed off, I decided to look at all of the launchers I have. Mm. I'd completely forgotten about the the Amazon and Twitch launcher. If you put a gun to my head and asked if that was real, I would have been like, I don't think so. <laughs> well, there's actually two. There's two? Yeah, there's an Amazon one and a Twitch one. They're both basically the same. They both tie into the same account, but they've got different front ends. The thing is, I looked at my um, library and... Um, I had 345 games on it. Wait, 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 what? Yeah. How? how? Yeah, you get these games free every month through Amazon Prime, uh, similar to uh, Epic, I suppose, but they give you like six or something instead, and there's loot drops for millions of those free-to-play games as well. I don't know how long I've been a Prime member. I've got 345 games, and they're not like unknown games. You know, there's stuff like Ghost Runner in there and um, the Tarek games I noticed, uh, the Telltale games are all in there. Like, I've got all of these games. I didn't even know I owned them. And yeah, like that, when I was saying earlier about having thousands of games, it's kind of it's crazy. There's so many. This is shocking to me. Like, I think the Amazon and Twitch launcher actually um, gives you DRM-free versions of the games as well. Okay, I have to look into this. This is something we're going to want to follow up on, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 bizarre. I've got so many, but I would prefer if these things were a bit more consolidated. I mean, sure. Obviously, I don't want a monopoly from anyone, but there is an annoyance having to change, you know, passwords every time there's a security issue or whatever. Yeah. 
and it's it's just annoying when you can't find where things are installed because all these launches install things in different places. There's a lot of like user problems that come from this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, uh Call of Duty for the first time and I think ever, you could correct me on that. Uh I'm not a big Call of Duty guy. <laughs> uh is being delayed a year. Like we're we're going to get a year with no Call of Duty. They're taking a year out. I think it's probably because they're allowed to spend more time on focusing on a more polished product. You know, un- un- technically under new management, entirely speculation, but so you assume it's a security thing, like like they they have the the safety to do it rather than like it's not working. It absolutely makes sense for a company like Microsoft to want their new acquisitions to be solid games because I I know when Microsoft made a couple of acquisitions early from the Xbox onwards, like I'm not talking about Windows stuff. They got a lot of criticism because some of the purchases of companies they made didn't put out the best games. Like you know, they one of the biggest acquisitions they made early on was Rare. The Rare's games with Microsoft were not... You're hurting me. Well, they just weren't received as fondly as uh, any of the Nintendo stuff. They've started to find their stride now, um, but it was a long time. And I, I don't think any of the games were particularly poor, but... Well, it seems like they weren't able to do a lot of stuff they want to do either. Who knows? I, I, I've... Yeah. I think the same thing actually happened not too long ago with um, Ninja Theory. Uh, I think maybe as soon as Microsoft picked up Ninja Theory, they put out a game not too long afterwards that didn't really hit. I think it was only going to be a small scale game regardless, but there's a perception attached to that. And I think they're probably conscious of it. So they'll probably want whatever they put out next to be of a high quality. You think we're going to get like a much better game out of this or? Maybe that's the trade-off. Or maybe they're having fewer people working on it but for a, a longer period, maybe. Um, I, I, as I said, I don't know. It's just, this feels like a positive thing. I can't really see a scenario where it's not a positive thing because let's say the de- development's troubled, then delaying it's a good idea. I can't see a scenario where delay is a bad thing. Sure. Yeah, for, for this, I mean, I don't really have like some big, strong attachment to it, but I do, I have this paranoia. It's not even really paranoia. It's just what happens, which is like, when studios get bought out like this, like when, when like one company owns this much stuff, we get less things because of it. Because like, you know, they don't want to compete with themselves and there's usually more money going into the fewer projects, you know? I feel like this is the start. It's like, I don't care about Call of Duty. I really hardcore don't care about Call of Duty. <laughs> I, can, I can just start seeing more and more of this happening where it's like, oh, well, we can't have Call of Duty right now because we're about to release like a new Gears of War. We're about to release a new Halo. You know, it's like there used to be, you know, those are two big shooters that would not compete with each other. No, it's three big shooters that can't compete with each other. And there's probably something else yeah, like they're probably not going to put out like a new Doom game or a new Wolfenstein game around this. You know, you know what I mean? Like these kinds of games that might have competed like five, ten years ago, they're now under the same umbrella. So they have to stagger when those come out. Yeah, I, I think there there will be an element of um, projects being staggered. Like Ugh. when they're under the same umbrella, I think. And uh, when I say umbrella, I don't mean Microsoft. I mean like Bethesda. Mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely that Bethesda will be releasing games at the same time as other Bethesda games, but there's a, I think there's still a chance that Bethesda games will still be in, released the same time as Activision games. I think there will be. I think it depends on the kind of game. Is yeah, thing. yeah. I, th- I think I think there will still be like moments where like two shooters will be announced at the same, uh, reveal, uh, sorry, released at the same time because maybe yeah. I think you can't guarantee a product will work for everyone, and if they're different enough, it, obviously if they're the same kind of thing, like that's not really going to work, but. Um, EA has done that in the past. <laughs> yeah, I think they've they've often done it with uh, things like you know some of their more 
favorable franchises they've released at the same time as a battlefield or something like um like a mirror's edge or a yeah but that's like a, that's a, like a strong departure where it's like i don't think they would let us have like halo and call of duty at the same time i just think they would be too worried about overlap there and it's like that trickles down to like a lot of things in general you know we, we get less i think it's probably a healthy thing to not have that overlap anyway from a multiplayer point of view i actually saw i think it was the developer of dusk he was having a conversation with somebody else uh, on Twitter and I sort of jumped in where they were talking about how indie developers kind of aren't really making multiplayer games or shouldn't, may- maybe potentially shouldn't be making multiplayer games, competitive ones, because there's just no audience. It seems so rough. The player counts are so low. There just isn't a large enough audience to justify the development costs. But when I jumped in was to say that I've been on the, in that situation on the AAA front because I was... Sure. Making um, games during that period where it was almost a meme to basically point out that a game has attacked on multiplayer. (laughs) Yeah. The problem was that in a lot of cases, the multiplayer was actually not really taking a lot of time to develop internally because you had to kind of develop a lot of the tools and features anyway. Usually those things were made out of a kind of love for the project and an enthusiasm for the project, like being able to play this game you've been building that's maybe single player. You can now play the other developers you work with or your friends and family or something while developing it. It's it's actually really, really fun. Every project I've worked on that's had that multiplayer component has been great. It's It's a really good team building thing. The problem is... I don't think the game-playing public share that same enthusiasm as the developers, obviously. Yeah, no, unless you want to go play Spec Ops the line multiplayer with me. <laughs> we can do it. We can do it. I have it on Steam. Let's go for it. It's it's tough. I, I can't imagine really making a competitive indie multiplayer game. In fact, I think even AAA stuff. I think we're, we're past that point in time, like I, I was talking about. I think well, I'm talking about 2008-ish, 2009, where basically a lot of games are using Unreal 3 and you got got the netcode for free it kind of made sense to maybe get a third party developer to maybe build some maps because sure you know you have unique content or like progression system or something for a multiplayer game while you're developing the single player game and the thing is that cost people they assumed that the cost of making that was taking away from the single player and it in my experience it never was it was always something that was almost made because people were wanted to make it you know it was a kind of similar to the old story of goldeneye right yeah goldeneye wasn't meant to have multiplayer somebody was basically making it in overtime that's kind of how a lot of the multiplayer in the games i was working on in the past that's kind of how that went as well it's like somebody you know was toiling away in the free time or whatever and said look i've made this let's play it and then you know you get this like sort of rapport with other people in the studio. Yeah, to uh, reframe, like I guess my issue is just I want more competition. I think more competition is usually good for these things. But you are touching on something good there where uh, I- I've had that conversation a lot with people. Yeah. Where they, they have this like idea that like, oh, X thing is in game, which means we didn't get Y. Yeah. yeah. And I've had people <laughs> say that where it's like they were playing uh, a new fighting game, which actually has like good net code, but they had like a bad experience online for whatever reason. They made the statement to me like, oh, I think they focused more on like the uh, the visuals and the music than they did the net code. And I was like, you understand <laughs> That like anybody involved in one of those things is in like a completely different universe from like someone else involved in the other thing. Like aside from like when they're designing like the rollback netcode, they might like 
lay out some like ground rules where it's like okay if you want this game to like look okay you know your animations are probably going to want to look like this so like when they get rolled back they don't look like super janky yeah but like yeah i think people should just check their assumptions at the door if they if they haven't been involved in this stuff in some kind of way and it's like that's something i I try to do a lot because i'm still just like an amateur so it's like i usually try to give people the benefit of the doubt and what i especially when it comes to like if a game doesn't come out the way you want it uh, i would guess a good 60 to 70 percent of the time it's because they didn't have enough time or like someone above them was making decisions that they didn't they didn't want to make you know yeah yeah there was a point on gears tactics where um i got to the point where i planned out the, the campaign We'd had all the content and the game had been tested a lot. And there was there was a fair bit of feedback coming from other developers saying that maybe some of the side content's a bit long. You know, it's getting a tiny bit repetitive in the latter stages of the game. And it, it was a bit of a split between some of the people who were testing the game. There were people who were very, very into the um, mechanics of the, the combat. They, they just, they didn't, they loved having more excuses to, you know, engage with the combat. But then there were people who were technically trying to content munch their way through the game. They wanted more story. They wanted more cutscenes. They wanted more reasons to get to the end. Those people were not too happy with the amount of uh, what they considered filler content. I considered it more of the stuff that they should be enjoying in the game. But that obviously there's some people who you know play the game for story and stuff. Um, it's content, baby. My point that I'm getting to in a roundabout <laughs> way is that we were up against it time-wise and everything. And it really was a coin toss as to whether or not I could make the changes to the game to remove some of that extra content whilst making sure that the stuff we'd built for the game, because we'd made levels and stuff, you know, like we weren't just going to throw everything in the bin just because a certain percentage of players, <laughs> uh, you know, didn't want as much as another percentage of players, like that stuff still needed to exist. So it, I, there were ways of me reframing it. We had some procedural generation in the mission design. So there were ways of me like sort of like, you know, delivering that to players who finished the game, wanted to play things afterwards, you know, like like they could kind of re-roll the campaign and stuff. But I didn't have time in my working day to do that because I'd have to make the changes, which was obviously risky because it was so late in development. And I would have had to have tested everything, which would have meant me playing the campaign, the entire thing through. Obviously, I can play it, like, you know, at fast speed or whatever, and I can, you know, skip missions and stuff. Right. But still, it's quite time consuming. You have to do it quite a few times to make sure it's robust, because you're making a fairly big change to campaign of an actual AAA game that's going to be on a shelf, you know, you can't just mess around. The only alternative I would have had to had would have been working quite a lot of overtime. And so, yeah, I chose not to do that. We ended up shipping uh, with the campaign as it originally was so pleasing some people not pleasing others and sure enough it was mentioned in reviews like some people said like maybe in the latter stages things do drag a little bit in some places i'm like "Eh, yeah well (laughs) i could have done something about that but uh yeah it's tricky you know i chose life (laughs) i chose life sounds like such a dramatic step that's got to be like your bit on the kotaku article right i chose life oh i I certainly haven't done that through most of my career like it's just uh of course that's just one time i did and i think you know that's just one occurrence right For, for me when you add that across everyone in a studio or a team and then you do that across different projects and stuff you can understand how things can get missed and things can turn out the way they do <laughs> yeah you know it's 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 not as simple as um 
oh, I've done this instead of this. It could be that you just didn't have time to do something. Like, that is actually a genuine reason. You can run out of time. I feel like we should dedicate an entire episode to you talking about Gears Tactics one day. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I could get you to just talk for, like, two hours while I just, like, eat a snack or something. Wouldn't be as interesting as people would think. It's one of my favorite projects I've worked on. It'd be interesting for me. I don't care about the other people. <laughs> There's uh, something kind of related to what you're saying, uh, like, you know, balancing stuff out. I, I haven't kind of wanted to, to drill down into, which is um, elaborating on design process. That's something I feel like I struggle with, where um, in my project, I feel like it's very easy for me to lay out. This is why I've done what I've done. Uh, these are the challenges I've faced. And like, this was kind of like the mindset I had dealing with those challenges and what I've learned from dealing with those challenges. But if someone's like, what's your process? I, I, I'm i like, ooh, I feel like I should be able to answer this, but uh, I, I don't know if I can. So maybe you can help me in real time <laughs> figure out what is my process? Because I'm sure it's there. I, I've made a game, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's a question you'll always get in an interview. Yeah. In a similar way, I, I don't think I've ever got a clear answer because... I've worked on a lot of different types of projects and each of those projects have very different needs and approaches. There there are some general approaches you can make. It's just, I've always found, at least in more recent years, I've been very specific and said, on project X, I did YZ, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Right, look at you saying Z. <laughs> yeah, um, whereas I think earlier in my career, I would have just gone with what I believed the general correct approach was which may not have been correct for everything. When somebody asks you that, they want to know if you've thought about it, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I guess I gave good enough answers in previous interviews I've had, but like, I guess the way I would break down what I do, and I'm curious, like, if you have feedback on this, is basically, it's like, I lay out what is like my goal here? Like, what, what is like the intended experience? And then I try to think, what are basically the elements that need to like, that that can like work in repetition to like make this experience happen? Because the way I view most gameplay is it's some kind of a loop. It's like players presented with situation, player interacts with situation, the consequences of those interactions play out, repeat, you know, you see some enemies, you shoot one of them, they start shooting at you, you hide in cover, while you're hiding in cover, the guys you're shooting at move around, you peek out, you see guys, you shoot, you know, repeat, you know, there's like a loop there. And yeah, what makes that loop fun, in my opinion, is it's like, are the like reactions to what you're doing fun? Like, are they interesting? Are they like consistently interesting? And is then your like response to that feel interesting or does it just feel like you're taking the exact same action and like you're becoming like more and more aware of that i think the easiest example would be like you're in a hallway you have like no really good cover options dudes run in the hallway you shoot them you wait a little bit more dudes run in the hall you know that'd be like you know that'd be like the worst gameplay experience uh but i don't know developers think it's really sick if you're on a big minigun doing it so what do i know (laughs) yeah i i I guess sometimes player empowerment can be one of those goals that you've got Sure. I think that's that's a good, you know, first few steps. I think the one thing you're missing there is Okay. Uh and I would say this is this is probably just down to the fact that you're working mostly solo, but having a visual reference and, you know, some kind of 
thematic reference for another team member to run off with kind of thing yeah i usually pitch like what i'm doing is basically like if half-life and fear had a baby kind of (laughs) sort of only kind of but you know it's something if you've got something kind of for free like that like then i can understand why you would yeah uh, jump to that straight away but I've always found that the more buy-in you have from other departments, the better. And you can get that by getting other people to not just buy into your idea, but for them to create an idea based on, you know, the sort of kernels of information. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, that's kind of how you get like those, uh, what do you call them? Those trailers that kind of help the team know what like the game is. I can't remember the more general term is, but at Ubisoft, we called them uh, target footage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, target videos, basically. How how do I, like, sell that for, like, buy-in? I, I'm guessing, like, if I don't have a way to, like, create, like, a target video or something, I guess it's probably just, like, going to come down to, like, really nice language. And honestly, I, I kind of wonder if it's just, like, concept art and stuff. Because I feel like the instant I got concept art to promote my game, I got, like, a significant boost in um followers. Like, my, my YouTube following and my Twitter following, like, went up, like, a, a good amount. Not, like, crazy numbers, but, like, for, you know, going from basically nothing to something, it was pretty big. When it comes to how to work with um, other people to, you know, get that um, that kind of performance from others, it, it depends on you knowing them and how they work as well. So some people respond well to, like you said, like, detailed language, good descriptions. Some people prefer to see other work. Some people prefer to see other final products. I don't personally like to go that route. And if people are asking for that, I try to steer them away from it because, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy that it doesn't end well, I don't think, generally. Whereas if you find sources of stuff you like and then work from there, you can kind of split off in a different direction and then come up with something new. I think the industry needs more of that. So to like reframe that, would you say maybe it's like try to find things outside of games to reference? Not always outside of games, but... Or at least outside of that genre. So it's like you're not just... Yeah. Oh, I, we're making a shooter. Can we make this shooter like this shooter? Yeah, I, th- I think finding out... like say, say you have a target of something you like. If you just aim at that, you will make that and not as good a version of that usually, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, especially because I'm working on a mod, <laughs> so, you know, resources are limited. So if you find out what the creators of that looked at maybe go further down the ladder like just keep going down further and further to a point that's basically nothing like the place you started and then you can kind of branch off in different directions because you'll usually find something different i'm not a big art guy um, i'm not a big reader either but i there'll be a, there'll be points when i've found some media that i like and i sort of you know like enough to almost want to recreate i want i want to make something that makes other people feel the feeling i got from the art that i've experienced yeah so I find out where they got their inspirations and their ideas from. And, you know, sometimes you might not be interested. I find that a lot with music. Some of my favorite bands, I go back and listen to bands that they were inspired by and I can't stand them. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, different place, different time kind of thing. But it's interesting because when you do that, sometimes you will like them and then you'll like more stuff like that. And then, yeah. you know, you'll end up going off in these these different spokes, I suppose. You know, that's actually, that's something I have thought about. Because uh, I think like when you look at like something like Silent Hill, which is like very original and a lot of people laud it for that. You can also see the the inspirations like very, very heavily. And yeah. I've always felt like if I, for some some godforsaken reason, was put in charge of making a Silent Hill game, what I would do is not play any Silent Hill games. <laughs> what I would do is I would basically go look at a bunch of things that kind of like make me think about Silent Hill or like other pieces of horror that I found interesting. 
And I would basically do that way before I touch anything Silent Hill related and see, well, how would I want to inject this back in there? You know, watch a David Lynch movie or something. I feel like what you're saying, it's it's like it's something we were kind of talking about before the podcast where I was saying uh, every single Silent Hill game made by like the non uh, like the actual team was basically inspired by Silent Hill 2. Like, there's, out of the four main, I guess four or three, depending on what you think, original games, there's one game where it's like, it's your mind playing tricks on you. For some reason, every single one of them jumped on that, and I think it's because they all played Silent Hill 2, and they went, this is the peak of the genre. Because I feel like if they had more references, you know, they might have come up with something original. One of the other issues as well is that the references for Silent Hill 2 are so well known and so clear as well. Yep. Even if you're trying to use it as a reference and you're using its references yourself, you're kind of going to end up in the same place because it's so ubiquitous. Whoa, man, Jacob's Ladder, woo. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I love all that stuff and it, it is very difficult to not be inspired by some of it when you're making things in the same ballpark, but... yeah. You need to have some discipline, I think. And I, I think that's that's where it comes from like uh, as well. Uh, it's, it is a lack of discipline. And it's, sometimes it's okay to make mistakes, right? Sometimes you can go into something knowing it's a mistake. You know, you're making a, a game, a uh, product, a piece of art, whatever. Um, you're going into it and you know it's not quite the thing you want it to be. I have always thought in the past that the best thing to do would be to hold it back until you're ready. As I've got older, I've changed my mind on that. I, I think just get it done and you know improve next time i'm not saying quantity is better than quality but i think there is a balance to be had there i don't think it's a sort of like a such a binary decision as people make sure i think perfectionism is kind of destructive in general oh totally yeah i i, th- I think you should have a filter for these things and that's that's something that you only really get with time yeah unfortunately it's not something that can really be taught i mean when you work with people that time with them it's experience but yeah, having a filter and then releasing things because I, I, I'm guilty of it myself. I sit on projects for a really long time and a lot of them, in fact, most of them don't see the light of day. Yeah, that's something I'm really trying to get away from, and especially with level design. I, I find it easier when I just bash a level out, even if it's awful, and I look at it and I'm like, this sucks. And then I'm like, I'm able to <laughs> make something better where it's like, it's perfect in your head until you actually start. And then you're like, why isn't this everything I wanted? <laughs> yeah. I think the single best thing I ever heard in relation to game design was from a GDC talk. It was like, game design is not idea generation. Like, you know, there's the the meme of the idea guy. And I think people who are outside of game design don't really understand what that means. Where it's like, yeah. you know, we got back to it earlier where it's like, it's a process. It's, it's problem solving is how I put it. Like, the simplest way you can view game design is it's problems. You have a goal that you, you want for your game. And you're going to have issues getting there. And some of those issues are going to be really boring. That's why the door problem is like kind of the, the, the go-to. It's as simple as this. You have a door in your game or doors. How do they work? That's not like a, a foregone conclusion. Uh, can the player open the door? Can they close it? Can NPCs open the door? Can they close it? Can the door ever be locked? Can the door be broken? Every single one of these interactions is going to cost you something. It's going to cost time for everyone to you know implement the features to make it. Uh, you're going to have to spend the time testing it. You're going to have to design around it. So that's why my solution is uh, I don't fuck with doors. I don't. I do not put them in my maps. I, I hate them. <laughs> I do not think Half-Life 2 NPCs play around them very well. Like if the player, uh, if they open a door and you just kind of like close it, that's kind of the end of the interaction. They just kind of go, oh, and they have to like open the door again. So I just 
don't I don't do doors. I don't do doors. I'll occasionally do uh, fake doors where it's like uh, something you can push open in an area with like not much going on. That's about it. I'm trying to think of the worst doors I've had to work with in games. <laughs> I think obviously when you work in third person, doors are a nightmare, right? I've much preferred uh, having to you know break the line of sight in other ways. So like what 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 made doors specifically a nightmare in third person? I'm curious. Uh, you've got to think about the cameraman, right? It's like a hovering thing behind the player. Oh yeah. You need to think about where that's going, right? And because you can see what the character's doing, it looks stupid if they rub their face against the door when they open it. So <laughs> you then get expectations for the arms to do something, and then that can look a bit cheap if they just flick up. Oh yeah. So you, you want to do all that IK stuff and. I, th I think we handled it relatively well in Watch Dogs because I think we had quite a generous collision capsule that would kind of push it open and the animation kind of covered it. You were usually running in most cases anyway. But yeah, like I believe there's a pretty good video on the um, doors of Last of Us 2 by the, the coder who handled doors in that game. Yeah, there was a huge tweet thread on that, yeah. That stuff's a nightmare. Yeah, it was really interesting to read, though. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to send people if they just want to get, like, an information overload where I'm like, this is how boring this job is. This job is for nerds. <laughs> that's how I know I'm a certified nerd because I get excited thinking about this stuff. <laughs> so one thing I kind of want to talk about, especially since, you know, we're two episodes in now, is, uh, you know, what, what I've actually been working on, which is a Half-Life 2 mod called Inhuman, or I guess Half-Life 2 Inhuman as it shows on my Steam library right now. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to ask, basically, why did you start it? Well, do you want me to get into, like, why I started it with the name it has now, or how I started doing Half-Life 2 modding in general? I, I think specifically this, like, uh, what made you make this specific game, and, like, what is it about it that you carry on working on it? Yeah. So I had like projects I had done before on Source. I had kind of released an unfinished thing before and I was just always um, into um, AI design and stuff. I was always really curious how much I could kind of like push the uh, enemy side of things. And uh, I had like different weird working titles for it. And Human I settled on because I like the idea of playing as a sort of reprogrammed uh, combine soldier, if if somehow someone listening doesn't know what Half Life is, it's like a game where these aliens have taken over the planet, and most of the aliens are actually gone, and the the dudes you fight are basically like these cyborg guys that have been like they're like humans that have been like transformed into like soldiers for the the alien dudes. And I was thinking, uh, I like plots where the gameplay choices you have line up with like whatever makes sense in the story so in a game like this i think it makes sense for the player to not have too much free will outside of like just killing whatever is in front of them if they were literally like this guy who's like kind of like a robot dude like sent uh out on some mission you know to go mess up these alien overlords for the uh human resistance i thought that could kind of lead to some fun little moments in in like the game Kind of inspired by um, Minerva, if you've ever played that. It was a big Half-Life 2 mod back in the day, which has a similar premise. Is it going to be quite narrative heavy then? Not super heavy. Uh, we're still kind of figuring out how we want to in inject some of the plot beats. It's probably going to be mostly the way Minerva does it, where it's like, oh, you have some text to kind of give you like context, but like 
you're not going to have like a lot of narrative moments in the game. It's definitely a game built around like the gameplay, which is basically like a uh, completely redone AI and completely rebalanced uh, weapons. And that AI you've test run on other projects, correct? Yeah, uh, I got a lot of the baby steps of this going for uh, that now cancelled Half-Life 2 Episode 3 project uh, called um, Boreal Aleph or Aleph. I don't even remember anymore. It was the worst title ever, and I have no issue saying that publicly. <laughs> I said it on team multiple times. Project Borealis is a banger name. You do not forget Project Borealis. I'm not. I'm gonna like remember that when I'm dying on my deathbed with like Alzheimer's or something. I'll be like Project Borealis. People are like Grant, pop, pop. We don't know what you're talking about. They still haven't shipped. <laughs> Fun fact: I worked on that for a while. Yeah, you made that that sick level they used in the uh, little preview thing. Yeah, I wonder what that looks like now. <laughs> yeah, probably the same. But yeah, uh I I got a lot of stuff going on there. Um one of the bigger things I did was um I got a modular AI system or at least the baby steps of it where um actions were and their conditions were kind of described in uh like kind of a separate file, kind of the way a fear does it where they they store all their actions and then the actions get called by the NPC rather than like all these actions kind of being stored on the NPC itself, which is what Half-Life 2 kind of does. Right. And when I moved on to a different project, I realized one of the limitations to this, though, was um, the conditions were uh, because they were all stored in the action. It became awkward when they were transferred between very different NPCs or if I wanted really different reasons for them to be using like the same actions. And so rather than like kind of making a bunch of variations of these actions where it's like, oh, move to shoot for this reason rather than this reason. Uh, I added a basic uh, utility consideration system where uh, when an NPC declares like what actions it has, so it like kind of grabs like all these actions that are already like kind of existing, it gives them some considerations that basically like determine whether or not they should even use it. Like a simple example being a distance from their enemy consideration. So if they have an action that's like, oh, run at my enemy, uh, they wouldn't bother using that if they're like closer than a certain distance. And then vice versa, if they're further than a certain distance, then the chance of them using it, you know, goes up. What would you say inspired that approach? Honestly, reading a lot about um, Fear's AI, and I I've followed a lot of Anything I can find on like AI, both design and programming, I try to really like consume. Uh, I just always want to have as much clean, fine-tuned control over my AI as possible. Uh, Half-Life 2's default AI setup is literally uh, a bunch of if-else statements. So it's like, if I have this condition, maybe I do this, or maybe I do this. Maybe it's just a for every possible situation you can think of, you have to like spell it out that way, and that right. that is so hard to work with, and it eats up so many lines of code. Where if you just have let's say like ten or twenty actions, and then like just some little utility things under it, it's very it's much easier to go through and be like, okay, well, why isn't he doing this? Uh, well, it's either because the conditions aren't met for the actual like action, or the utility uh, considerations are returning like a score of zero or negative okay i guess i haven't had enough experience setting up ai systems to have like really like tackled that myself would you say it's most similar to fears then what you've got now i don't know if i'd say it's most similar to fears it's it's hard to compare because i haven't seen a lot of other games uh source code fear uses a system called uh goal-oriented action programming if i remember correctly goap uh, where it basically uses like a star to kind of like make a uh, a sequence of actions uh, that like solve a certain like given goal, you know. So it'll be like, oh, I want to kill my enemy. So what I want to do is I want to reload my gun, 
and then I want to move to this position, and then I want to shoot them. Uh, mine's a little bit simpler than that, where I have to have each action like kind of stored by itself. So it's closer to just like any game that uses like basic utility scoring, be kind of like that. But it's very fear inspired in terms of how I structured it. Yeah, and I guess the format of the combat as well is closer to fear, right? Yes. You're trying to distance yourself from Half-Life 2, I believe. Yeah, the big thing for me was um, making it very uh, driven by player choice and what the enemies are doing in the world. So a big thing I took from fear is uh, the enemies no longer just orient around you. So like in Half-Life and Half-Life 2, when an enemy wants to shoot you or like they want to get you, their only real uh, course of action is moving to a spot where they can see you. And even if it makes no sense for them to know where you are, they're going to do that because, you know, the game just kind of tells them like, OK, this is where the player is. So I'm going to go move here, shoot them. This can actually lead to a lot of really stupid behavior. If you've ever had that experience, especially in Half-Life 2 fan maps where people don't know how to map around them. Uh, if you've ever had that experience where you're like kind of in a like around a corner or in a hallway and you just kind of get like a conga line of guys running after you. <laughs> that's kind of why it's because they don't have anything that kind of helps them wait oh, I'd rather be here rather than just like move directly to the player. They're just moving directly to you. So if that means moving a ridiculously like far distance or like going somewhere that's kind of dangerous, they'll just do it because that's all they know how to do. By making them cover-based, where basically when they want to do something, it almost always has to be in relation to cover. So like if they see you and they don't have cover, they want to get to cover. If they want to attack you and they can't see you, they try to get a shoot position that's near cover. If they are moving away from cover, they better be near cover first. So it's like I, I kind of give them like one chance to kind of get further away from like a current cover position uh, if, if that means attacking you because it was important that they're you know still on screen, but they're not like chasing you down to like an extreme amount. Right, right. You mentioned cover quite a lot there. There's no cover system as such, though, correct? Uh, not currently, yeah. Right now, it's basically just, like, positions they take behind stuff. I don't know if I want to experiment with any kind of, like, the old... There's, like, some old cut animations they have for, like, pressing up in the cover and, like, leaning from it. It basically just comes down to, like, will the players know to that, notice that? And is that uh, worth the trade-off for, like, all the work it would take to, to get that going? Yeah, you're somewhat limited by the source of the the source of the source engine right the the um the source assets you have yep pain uh so so that approach obviously sounds like it works for humanoid enemies yep how does that approach translate to the airborne uh, enemies like the manhacks so you can actually do similar things with the the manhacks uh Side note, uh, getting flying NPCs in the system for whatever reason was a, a, a massive pain. Uh, don't recommend. Uh, just, I don't know. Something about like them using physics for their movement just means like sometimes they get confused and I don't know where to find just a little bit of code that's like, hey, you're confused. Uh, here's how you reorient. So that's been a nightmare and a half. <laughs> Basically, what I have uh, have them do is they orient around where they last saw you rather than just where you are. If they haven't like seen you for a while, they'll just go to like your last seen position. And if they're already at your last seen position, they have a way of um, calculating a possible hiding position where they literally just think, okay, where would I take cover from where I last saw my enemy? That would like, you know, hide him from uh, me and all my squad mates and I'll go look there and I have them do that. And that basically um, handles what I what I want at a situation like 99% of the time. Like I've I, I am actually surprised sometimes how well they are like searching around the level in a way where it almost looks like you directed them to like you told them, hey, go look for the player here. It's like, no, they're just 
they're just guesstimating, well, I would take cover here, so I'll go look over there. I suppose the mix of the different archetypes will probably help the fact that they don't work in the exact same way, right? Yeah, definitely. It's like you let the man hacks do kind of like the more aggressive searching while the soldiers are more inclined to hang back and, and like stuff like that kind of helps or more like natural flow because i actually think it's better to usually let your um, enemies like that kind of hang back and have it be more player driven because uh i think they are in the more advantaged position and i think the player feels smarter uh, digging them out of that position than like fighting them off it's not a it's not a question of challenge it's a question of like the experience where it's like if i have the soldiers like run after you regardless of whether or not that's uh easier or harder it's going to be more reactive you're you're like okay like there's a guy here i gotta shoot him oh there's a guy here i gotta shoot him you know like you're you're given less time to think okay this is where i'd rather be where if i have them wait on you uh then i can start having the player really think about uh what path do they want to take uh what tools do they have maybe i could throw a grenade to like knock these guys out of this position because they'll run away from grenades so if they're in a spot you don't like like they're they're pinning you now you can flush them out with grenades so well, with with these changes, how have you had to change the way levels are built? I assume there would be differences compared to Half-Life 2. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. So that's where fear becomes another big inspiration. Honestly, <laughs> a lot of more modern shooters do this. Uh, you have to really think about cover positions as like AI movement positions. Because like, if you want them to move up, they need to have positions they can hide behind. If Even if they're not like actually hiding behind them when they when they move there. They need to have those positions. So I've learned after getting kind of like the, the the numbers down for like, oh, distance they want to be from you, distance they want to be from each other. I try to keep them from bunching up. Uh, I can kind of guess, okay, so like if I have three, let's say you have like three soldiers in an arena, you probably want to have a minimum of about like nine to 12 pieces of cover that they could use at any time because you don't want them bunching up. They want to stay a certain amount of distance away from each other. And you want them to have different options. So like, let's say the player exposes where they are and they, they want to run away. They should have a location that actually like makes sense for them to run away from. So they're going to need like a free cover spot that isn't too close to one of their, um, their allies. So making areas that are either kind of wide or kind of long helps in that regard. Wide is what I usually aim for. I don't want them running really far distances, but I want them to be able to like get away from each other which um, helps create more situations where they like might surprise you, you know, kind of get on your side or whatever. Yeah, so what you're talking about here is what commonly referred to as combat metrics, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, a, mi- a mix of combat metrics and level design metrics, yeah. Yeah, the, the more experience I've gotten, the more I've gotten better about like trying to use metrics for that. And it, it, it's helped kind of get other level designers on board with stuff. And it, it's helped me get better at helping out level designers, it, like outside of working on my stuff, if they're just kind of like, doing things. I'm like, well, like, what do you have to work with? And like, wh- you know, what kind of context can you can you like uh, use to kind of shape that in kind of a, I guess, like a mathematical way rather than having to think about it like artistically? Yeah, yeah, you should always have a standard to work to and there should be consistency in your design. It's okay to break it now and again, but I think yeah. level design driven by metrics is it's it's how you make games feel good. Yeah, there's a really great article. I feel like there's not enough good level design stuff out there, honestly, but there's a really great article uh, called the, uh, I believe it's called The Door Problem of Combat Design from a man named Andrew Yoder. Yeah, another door-related article. <laughs> yes, yeah, and uh, it's not literally about doors, like opening, closing doors, but it's about it's about how do you get the player into a space rather than 
staying outside of the space. So it's like, okay, you've got a room and there's monsters or whatever in it. And obviously you've got a path leading up to that room. The player sees the monsters. They back away back to where they came from rather than pushing up because they don't have the information. They don't feel comfortable moving into that space. That's an issue I notice in Quake a lot, by the way, is like you see dudes kind of early on and it's like you're the smartest thing to do is to not engage. It's smarter to back away and let them come to you. So... A big thing for me is constantly making sure the player has like those anchors in the level. It's really helped that the AI is so cover driven because it's actually, it lets me think about the player and the enemy in very similar terms where it's like, okay, they're going to want this cover to get here. They don't want to get shot. So they're going to want to move from this cover to this cover to this cover. And that's what's going to help them feel, you know, cozy moving up. And um, yeah, I think biggest thing was uh, realizing centralized cover is the best stuff in the world because if you just have some kind of big piece of line of sight blocker in like the center of the stage uh that that's instantly that's two paths when people think about like paths in game they want they think of like a fear like the craziest fear levels where there's like really interconnected like hallways and like they're quite far apart but if you just have like a meaningful distinction between like the left side and right side uh, that will create like interesting and surprising moments. If if you can't see everybody who's on screen right away at all times, or if they're forcing you into situations where you can't, that kind of gives you the experience you want, at least for what I'm going for. Uh, I'm a big fan of the original Half-Life, where I think the reason people like those soldiers so much is because the game constantly gives you little situations where you can observe what they're doing. So, like, if you hurt a guy and he doesn't want to get hurt anymore, he has to turn around and run to where he's going. He doesn't, like, shoot at you while looking at you. He doesn't, like, yeah. he doesn't do anything that obfuscates what he's trying to do. He just runs away. And even if you don't understand why he's running away, you see a guy running away and it feels more human than, ironically, the more advanced uh, Combine in Half-Life 2 where they often face you while shooting. So every action looks the same. They're just facing you and shooting. Yeah, there's clear signposting and all of their behaviors. They're, they're showing everything in Half-Life 1, and in Half-Life 2, you're not really getting that. You're just getting response. See, so you're only getting feedback. You're not getting any signs. Yeah, exactly. And like combining that with, like, I'm trying to avoid exactly like making the game too hard or anything, but like making it more enemy-sided when you're in a firefight. So like if there's three guys on screen, you actually don't want that situation. So you're more inclined to like take cover to get away from all that gunfire. And those are the moments where they're probably going to move up. They're probably going to go somewhere you weren't totally expecting. And that's how you get like more interesting gameplay scenarios. Yeah, you get more of a combat puzzle than you do, say, a shooting gallery. Yeah, exactly. Because that's a, that's a big issue. So again, going back to like the, the Half of Two fan map thing. Because I feel like it's more egregious there because they don't know how to design around it as well as I think Valve learned to. Yeah. Uh, is you'll just see people run at guys and just hold down mouse one. They'll just like, like, all right, let's just get this over with. Because uh, the game is kind of just built around that. It's not really avoiding damage isn't really feasible because it's hit scan. Yeah. And the game constantly tops you off resource wise. So you're like, well, I might as well just get this over with so I don't get hurt too much and I can get more stuff sooner. Yeah. I mean, it's effectively what shooters became afterwards. Yeah. Rather than you having a bunch of crates around the maps that gave you what you needed, your health would just come back and you usually had an infinite ammo weapon. Yep. You know, there was no friction whatsoever. See, I think that's a shame. I like a little friction. Yeah. I think it's important for the player to have some moments where they're like, oh, this isn't what I want because then you're happy when you get what you want. Nothing feels better than when a part of the game is easier after a hard part, especially if it's easier 
because you've gotten good at it or because like you're doing something right. Like I think of playing something like um, Path of Exile, which is a uh, it's like an action RPG like uh, Diablo. So I guess you say Diablo too. Um, where a lot of people play these games in a mode where if you die, that's it. You lose your character. They're dead forever. So even though like the gameplay is relatively simple, the hard part's usually kind of like making your character like, you know, really good, like getting the right gear and all that crap. Um, so the moments where it's easy don't feel boring because you know what it feels like when the game is hard and you're literally like worried that this character you've been playing for like potentially 100 hours is going to be dead forever. <laughs> so when you're having a moment where you're just wiping dudes, you're like, ah, it feels good. It's a slower drama curve, right? Compared to, say, Hunt yeah. or um, Tarkov, where you're basically always paranoid that you're going to die. So yeah. as a result, they've had to lower the um, cost of death so you know yeah it doesn't invalidate it because you can still get to that point where you're you're chancing it because you've got so much stuff that you don't want to lose yeah but then you get people who get to a point where they've got multiple characters and they never want to use that one because the chances of loss is so high yeah exactly so that's kind of yeah that, that's a good point or I'm, I'm aiming for like kind of that that sweet spot of friction where it's like you know every now and then you're having like a rough time but like when you get through it you feel good yeah and the game gives you like a, a chance to kind of like recover and uh, I, I've taken a couple steps to kind of make the gameplay a little bit more fair in that way, too, where, uh, for instance, like um, when soldiers shoot at you, uh, they kind of check uh, if they've actually looked at you for a while, if they've been like stunned recently from like a big flinch and if you're moving and those factors can actually lead to them missing uh i guess you could say like intentionally like they're they're guaranteed to miss so like if they've just seen you and you're like kind of running across their view they'll actually like kind of trail where they're shooting behind you right uh little things like that actually let me say damage is avoidable is it like perfectly avoidable i don't know but like it's 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 in theory fair you know like I've seen players enter a, a, a encounter with like low health and not able to get it back. Like there's not a lot of goodies for them in the in the map, and they had to get through this encounter. And they did it. And they did it, and they were really really happy when they did it. They're like they they. I remember one literally started where he's like, "Oh, there's no way I'm doing this." And when he when he finished, he was just like, "Woof!" I was, I was like, "That's an experience you can't have in Half Life 2 because they just shoot hit scan guns at you with like no kind of yeah." accuracy curve or whatever so it's just sort of like oh maybe when you poke out you'll die maybe you won't good luck yeah some chance is better than no chance i suppose yeah i always want the player to feel like they they have like a a shot at it i will say i go back and forth on saves a lot because like the it's, it's half-life 2 modding still so it's just you know the typical save system with like auto saves um i feel like players can get in like situations that are even worse than i want where <laughs> you know people often reject having to do a section over you know what i mean like like people yeah. got mad at that at first with like dark souls and i'm like i think it's actually better sometimes to ask somebody to replay a section and come out of it with like more health than for them to like finish it go into the next part with like no health and be like well now what and it's like well if you had the option to redo the last part you just did you'd be good. You know what I mean? Like you'd be able to get through this. Obviously Half-Life 2 had those containers, the, the little, mm -hmm. uh, what, they, what are they called? The resupply boxes. Uh, dynamic, re well, yeah, they basically just have like item crates and they usually put a thing called dynamic resupply in it, which grabs whatever the player needs. Yeah, so are you using those? To an extent, but weighted. So those uh, items actually have options for um, how much of any one thing you want the player to have. Right. So usually what I do is I set it for very low amounts of health 
and then like higher on like ammo and stuff so if the player comes into like certain encounters with like ridiculously low health i'll give them like just that little bump up so it's like okay you can have like 40 health or whatever like you can have like one battery to like restore your your shield whatever uh but you're not going to get topped off i don't believe in topping the player off i think if the player wants to be doing good on resources, they need to earn that. And I think that's a more rewarding experience for them. It, it makes exploration more rewarding because if I don't just give them that health and like the, the nice ammo, you know, for like the big guns, if I if I put that more in just like little nooks and crannies, they feel rewarded for doing it. Where if the game constantly gives you all the main ammo you need and all of the health and armor you need, every single like big combat encounter, uh, exploration, it just becomes kind of like a thing you do or you don't, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there's a really great Half-Life 2 map uh, called Year-Long Alarm. That map had really great exploration design. Like, going through there and, like, finding stuff felt good. But it felt like you could also just ignore that because it was still Half-Life 2. So, like, for the first half, you're just dealing with, like, zombies and stuff. So it's like, you're not really worried about your resources. You're kind of killing everything with, like, a gravity gun. Yeah, it's playground, right? And then when he gives you soldier encounters, you know, you got like health and stuff that's in the arena and after the arena. So it's like you never feel like, oh, man, I'm really glad I did all that exploration. Now I'm being like paid off. It's sort of like, oh, it's cute that he hit all this stuff. <laughs> I really want that experience where it's like if you find that hidden stuff, you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of exploration is it's kind of one of the things that is lost in more recent shooters, right? Yeah. Secrets were a much bigger thing in older shooters, like to the point where... There was literally a, a message on screen saying you found a secret. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I feel like however your like health system and whatnot works in your game, like kind of forces you to like design around it. And I, I feel like too many games have too many like crutches for designers where um, I think regen health is kind of like the bane of like natural gameplay pacing. I feel like a lot of those games that have regen health also have a lot of like forced walking and, and stuff like that because they have to find other ways to quote unquote pace the game out because they can't do it through gameplay. Like uh, another way to look at that is like, think about like when you want a game to be like hard, right? I think survival horror games can really do that well if it's like something like Resident Evil because you can have an enemy that literally just like kills the player. Like if they just touch them, yeah. they kill them and it can be fair. Like think of like the chainsaw guy in Resident Evil 4, you know, like yeah. they're perfectly avoidable, like they're designed to be avoidable, but if they get you, they're going to get you. So like if the designers want to kind of scale the difficulty up, they can throw more of those kinds of challenges in a level and be like, all right, deal with this. And you're like, oh shit. And you know, it can lead to a really unique experience. Survival horror games are actually quite good at putting the player into a situation where they almost always feel tempted to overstretch, you know, like yeah. they're always overreaching that potentially beyond their abilities. They they could be running low on health, but they want to, you know, keep their health item for later, or they don't have one because they've been stockpiling ammo instead because they don't have enough space in their inventory. So Yeah, exactly. I think survival horror is actually really good for that. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot to be learned from that that's kind of been lost by the safety of modern shooters going the route where, you know, your your health comes back when you hide behind a wall for a while. Yeah. And it's what's ironic is a lot of those games are actually harder. So like I was going to say, um, if you want to make a regen health game hard, what are your options? Uh, so the player regenerates their health like whenever they hide, right? So your options are either uh, make that regeneration like slower and take longer, which is boring, right? So what they're probably going to do is they're going to make enemies do more damage. 
And that's how you get these games where your very first combat encounter kills you in like half a second because you're fighting enemies that you're going to fight throughout the game using guns that they use throughout the game. So they're all like it's the same damage values. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, go play that first combat encounter in Gears of War on like whatever the hard, hard mode is. And it's like you're just dying. Like if you poke your head out for more than like two seconds, you're dead. So what's the difference between that and then like the mid game and the late game? Yeah. Hell, half the time when they introduce like the crazier enemies, they're often less scary like there's like these big dudes with like explosives and i'm like hey man i can avoid explosives i can't avoid bullets you know like i can't dodge a bullet yeah with gears specifically it's the combat puzzle yeah they make it more obvious earlier on there's obvious cover points you should be taking in order to flank the enemy everything's about flanking yep so i think with a cover shooter i think you get you get a bit there's a bit more grace there because you can you can lean more into the positional uh, gameplay rather than the sort of twitch gameplay of a first-person shooter. Sure. First-person shooters don't really have that same thing, usually. Yeah. But it sounds, it sounds like, at least in your game, you're trying to go a bit more that route with um, more flanking options. Yeah, I really want the player yeah, to think about flanking and like where they're at, especially because, again, the enemies don't track where you are all the time. Like They don't know where you are when you go behind a wall. So you can actually feel like you flanked a guy. You can actually see them go walking in the wrong direction looking for you and like shoot them in the back or something. And that's like an experience you just can't have in Half-Life 2. And that's something I really value. It's also something you can experience in fear again. Uh, I really need to find more games to cite other than fear. But <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I feel like shooters are in a really weird place where it's just not a lot of them do what I want, even though it's like technically my favorite genre. It's, it's a weird thing to say. I'm like, yeah, I love shooters. Also, I hate shooters. Yeah, I guess we need those types of behaviors to be in games that aren't just immersive sims, right? I call them survival action. I feel like Half-Life was like survival action. You know, it's not survival horror, but it's like you are thinking, okay, I don't want to use this resource. Okay, I don't want to get too hurt here. You know, like I want to try to avoid this damage as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about when I was playing like Doom 3. That's a very Half-Life inspired Doom. Everyone just thinks of it like a horror game. And it is, but like... It's very Half-Life. Like, go play Half-Life and then go play Doom 3. And it's like, oh, it's yeah. it's literally doing the same stuff. And it's like, you know, you look at that and then look at, like, Doom 2016. And I love Doom 2016, don't get me wrong. But it's like, Doom 2016 is kind of like, oh, well, what if we get, like, that kind of Call of Duty or Halo or Gears pacing in a Doom game where it's like... uh you feed off of them, which feels great, but it also means that every encounter feels more similar than not because you're never able to be on low health or low ammo for that long or the game kind of breaks. It's like, it's not really what the game's made for, you know? Yeah. So that's like the big challenge for me right now is uh, I'm trying to work towards shipping probably around in May or right after. And so I'm working on a bunch of disparate content and I need to get it together as like soon as possible because I want to start testing for... Uh, the whole game you know i mean i, I want to see yeah how long can i have the player go at like not full health because like that's something i haven't fully been able to test yet and i really want to see how that pays out i guess you know one thing i could say that i i learned from this project that i i, I really did not think about going into it was uh so much of ai design is not just like why they do something but how they do something right and like if if uh, if it's a game where you really want them to stand out and like it's very like back and forth like what I'm making, the player really really notices it when they're doing something stupidly. Even if like the why makes sense, if the how doesn't, it's terrible. <laughs> like a small example, and this is like a really dumb technical thing. I had a, a a arena with like two floors, right? It's a linear space, but there's like a second. Uh, there's kind of like some platforms above. You follow me so far? 
Yeah. Um, so it's like, if you want to get up to those platforms, you got to go past the enemies and then like up some stairs and then, you know, it's, it's, it's a decent trek up there. So I had some enemies on this bottom floor. That's where you start too. You'd encounter them. They would see you. And then two or three out of the four of them would leave the environment entirely. And then like a good 15 to 20 seconds later, there they are up on the second floor. And I was constantly like, why? are they doing this? And I kept thinking, oh, they must like not be able to get cover on like, maybe I'm like doing something wrong. My metrics are off or something. And I, I just did everything I possibly could. And it just wasn't consistently giving me what I wanted. And then I realized what was happening had nothing to do with mistakes on my end. I was, the map was fine and the AI was working as intended. There were no bugs. The problem was when they looked for a position, they were going a flat distance. So if you trace to a position directly above your head, that might technically be closer than a position that's like forwards on the ground, even though the path there is a lot further. They're not testing for the path because that would that would make the game literally freeze. I tried it. It will literally lock the game up. I'm sure there's some cheaper way modern games do it. I haven't unlocked that yet. Yeah. So what I did to, to fix that was when they do their distance check, because they, they, um, they, they look for all like the kind of movement nodes they can move to. And I had them kind of like, they have like a waiting thing where it's like, okay, the distance will determine which ones I check for first. I add the Z distance times two. So I'm like, okay, the Z distance is like basically extra weighted. So if they're not on the same floor, they're less likely to go down there. And that solved it. And it's like, that's not really, it's not really game design, but you have to think of it like in that way or it's like, it's not why, it's how. It's it's rough. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, AI design is a nightmare. That's that's the takeaway from this. Uh, don't do it. Hire me to do it instead. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's about it. I got to say on the project uh, for now. Uh, any any other closing statements we wanted to make, or are we just uh, wrapping it up here? That probably does uh, wrap things up for us, right? We've covered everything. All right. Yeah, this is a much longer recording than we did last time. Yeah. But uh, I'm feeling a little better about it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that's translated to a better episode for. Uh, people listening you're gonna have to let us know and if you absolutely hated it uh go ahead and direct that to a sean noonan (laughs) at twitter uh it's it's entirely his fault so i'm bradley tolliver or comfort jones i guess (laughs) and uh this has been funk podcast with uh sean noonan yeah thanks yeah peace